key ingredient though was like whether it was like David at Drift or Ben at Privy, it wasn't like pulling teeth to get them to do these things. They believed in the value of them and they weren't like looking back at me two months later being like, what's the ROI on this? You know, show me the pipeline. They believed in doing it this way and we're gonna ready to make the long-term investment. I'm Pepe Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how did it win. This week, one of the top B2B marketing minds, Dave Gerhardt. Dave is the former VP of marketing at Drift, former CMO at Privy, and is now building his own B2B marketing education business. This is a special episode on how to use the founder story as a competitive advantage. Dave has a new book out called Founder Brand and has thought a lot about this stuff. In this episode, Dave shares why having a visible founder with a strong story can generate early growth and differentiate you from your competition. And we talk strategy for cultivating an engaged audience on social media. Let's get into it. We're in an era where most competitors in most markets look very similar to each other, both product and marketing-wise. So how can a visible founder make a difference here? Social media is still the biggest opportunity for startups. And I think it's just been missed. Uh, people have approached it wrong. And so like, I feel silly telling you like, yeah, you should be active on social media. But the reason it can be such an advantage for a founder is because you're able to reach your dream customers online directly from anywhere in the world without spending a dollar and get feedback on ideas and things that are interesting. Like it's just such a cheat code for getting not only getting initial customers, but just getting your finger on the pulse of what's happening in your world. But I think so many founders have just been like, social media has been like an afterthought or it's like ghost written and managed by the PR team. And what that means is like, they just tweet out webinar links and Boston Business Journal awards versus like what people actually want to hear today is thought leadership from experts in their industry. Like we are driven by expertise. And so if you sell to marketers, you sell to finance, the opportunity is to build up a direct relationship with those people online. And the way that you do that is not by promoting yourself, it's by adding value and being a thought leader. And the way that you be a thought leader is by putting out relevant, interesting content about your niche every single day, every single week. And it's just not a promotional channel. It should be a conversational channel. And that's where a lot of founders get wrong with it. Nepotism is not a thing of a distant, dark past. All the best jobs and deals are given to friends and family. It's how the world still works for the most part. Cultivate your nepotism opportunities. Engage with people on social daily. Comment on their stuff. Do the hard work of relationship building. It's going to take a long-ass time. But you're going to be around five years from now, too. The world runs on relationships and reputation, and your personal brand is your moat, key to most everything you want. Where David and Elias, the Drift founders, came from was a sales and marketing background. They built a product at HubSpot. They had a marketing automation company, Performable, before that. They had kind of spent over a decade in sales and marketing. What they set out to do was to build a marketing automation platform that was built on chat and messaging, and the focus was specifically on sales and marketing because that was where they came from. And so we saw that and we're like, oh, wow, this actually lines up perfectly from a content standpoint. That was our company strategy. This lines up perfectly from a content standpoint because we're going to go hard on telling the story like Drift is built for sales and marketing. Intercom is a great product. 
kudos to them. They built an amazing business, but they're building for product people. Look at the stuff they write about. Look at their content. Look at the integrations that we're building, right? And it's not just fluff, by the way. It's not just like marketing messages. You have to deliver on that in the roadmap. And so what that meant was the Drift product team at this stage was like amazing and just cranking out new stuff. And everything that they put out, it'd be like every week they're putting something out. It had to be backed up by that like built for sales and marketing. And so while Intercom may build some product management SaaS app integration that product managers will love, we need to be putting out things that have a direct use case for sales and marketing. And the way you show that to the market is by constantly delivering on that. And I don't think I've ever told this story out loud, <laughs> out loud before, but it, but it was, uh, this is why it's so hard to give marketing advice online sometimes, even though I do <laughs> and take a very definitive take and people, you know, get really mad about it or whatever. But there's so much nuance because we had all these secret ingredients. Like one of the key ingredients to the drift strategy was the fact that we could use when like we literally sitting at a whiteboard and just think about like, all right, what, what ammo do we have as a company to tell our story? Well, David and Elias came from HubSpot. Everybody in this world is going to know HubSpot. He was a chief product officer there. Elias was a VP of engineering. Their company got acquired by HubSpot. They rebuilt the whole product. And we can tell this like decade of experience in sales and marketing story. Okay. Let's go use that to our advantage. And so what's cool about this is like, this is why people say your story is your strategy. This is a perfect example of that because that story, the VP of product was aligned on that story. And so the things that product was building was aligned to that story. The things we were doing in marketing were aligned to that story. And this is why like, it's not about the little tactic. It's about fundamentally like sitting down as a leadership team or, or the founders or whatever stage of the company you're at and being able to articulate your strategy beyond features and integrations you're going to build. And, and this was such a simple way of framing the company and framing what we needed to go do. I've never been a part of a team at that stage that was so aligned and, and cranking. And that was a big reason that we grew so fast. Many dismiss strategic messaging, brand storytelling, and positioning as marketing fluff. What these companies fail to realize is that the story is the strategy. Your brand and your story can act as a rallying cry to your audiences. You probably don't have enough money to compete and win on innovation, but anyone can win on brand. A study by Adweek found that the ability to craft a brand narrative is the most important characteristic of a challenger brand. As narrative strategist Andy Raskin explains, your story is the promise to your customers that your product brings to life. They're buying your story before they ever use your product. I used to think that the story was kind of like wrapping paper for the product. Like, you build this product and then, you know, we're going to create this story that's going to like make it look good on the shelf. <laughs> Through lots of experiences, I came to this kind of almost flipped view, which is that actually the story is the main thing we're building and the product is, is kind of like a prop for making the story come true. When I work with teams this is something I hear over and over is that the story wasn't just like, oh, for selling, although of course that's often the, the first impetus, but it becomes this kind of strategic North Star that guides like the product team on what we're even building. That's why I, I really believe this uh, thing that, that the story is the strategy. You were a CMO at Privy, and uh, so how did you approach founder brand there, and what kind of impact did it have? So when I went to Privy, I had like the opposite playbook from Drift. Like when I went to Drift, it was starting at zero, but the founder was kind of well known, David. When I went to Privy, they had half a million people using their app, 
and they were like one of the top apps in the Shopify app store, but not a lot of people in that world knew Ben. And so the opposite scenario was, well, here we already have distribution. We have plenty of people we can reach out to an email and talk to about this. So there it was more like, we need to get this guy a microphone. <laughs> and I wish I had some like crazy, sexy playbook that we did, but it was like the ingredients there were like, he already had, they already have distribution. They already have half a million people using the app. They already have however much website traffic. He's been in this space for 10 years, just been very quiet about it. One of the reasons that I went there was because he's like, I want to turn the volume. I, I want to go do this thing. And I think you can help me. And so the very first thing that we did was launch this, we called it e-commerce marketing school. And it's like a perfect example of creating like the show for your dream customers where there's a lot of podcasts and information about e-commerce and, sh- and the Shopify ecosystem and marketing, but there's not somebody who was the leader for small businesses because marketing, teaching small businesses how to do marketing is very different than B2B. It's, it's very SMB. This is like somebody who just had an Etsy store and might now migrate to Shopify and you're teaching them how to do email marketing. And so we created a, a show that was, we're going to bring 101, 102 level marketing information about how to run your Shopify store. And I hosted it at first to get it out the door, but Ben actually was like, I'm really hungry. I want to do this. And so we made the decision after a couple months to do, he did a daily podcast for like six months and it was 10 to 12 minute episodes. And he had a list of today, I'm going to talk about one or two very tactical lessons. And so over the course of a year, now we built up over a hundred episodes of very tactical e-commerce marketing lessons that that gave him ammo to then that's what he can post on LinkedIn about. That's what he can post on Twitter about. He wants to go speak in an event. He's now done a hundred mini speaking opportunities. And so there it was just like putting the pieces together. Again, the key ingredient though was like he wanted to do that. And in, in either of these cases, whether it was like David at Drift or Ben at Privy, it wasn't like pulling teeth to get them to do these things. They believed in the value of them and they weren't like looking back at me two months later being like, what's the ROI on this? You know, show me the pipeline. Like they believed in doing it this way and we're going to ready to make the long-term investment. When I studied CXL more than 10 years ago, there was a question of whether it should be about me or the company. I decided to go all in with putting myself in the forefront. In hindsight, it was totally the right move. It's just easier to connect with a real human rather than an entity. When you're a small business doing what countless other small businesses are doing, your person is what's different about your business. If I like you and respect you, I'm gonna hire your company. Using a human to differentiate, to give a reason to choose you over others, is not just for small businesses. I mean, look at Google, Microsoft, Apple, Tesla. They all have a specific individual or two that we know of and might have positive feelings towards. The opposite of a personal brand is indifference or no brand at all. Like who are the names behind Nissan or Chevrolet? No clue. And hence, I'm less likely to buy either. Building and using your personal brand just works. Build it and use it. Where do you start with personal brand building? Be visible, be consistent, have strong, authentic opinions. Ship regular content in whatever form. The more the better, as long as you can maintain a level of quality. You can 100% use social daily. Are you reluctant to put yourself out there? View your articles, interviews, and social posts as an act of generosity, not an imposition. You're building a reciprocal relationship with your audience. As Rand Fishkin, co-founder and CEO of Sparkdoor points out, personal brands built on education work. 
because people value people who are helpful to them. For me, obviously, personal brand building came about through content marketing. But we can see many other folks, especially in this age of influencer marketing, where it's less content-driven and more personality-driven. I don't think people are particularly actually interested in Rand Fishkin. Yeah. They're interested in what does he write and say? How can he help my business? You know, how can his content help me to be a better marketer? And if I have any personal brand cachet, that is because of the educational work that I've done to help other people, right? And that's very different from, oh, I like Rand because his face is funny and he's on YouTube or, you know, he's on TikTok every day or whatever it is, right? Those are very different kinds of personal branding. I think in the software as a service world and in the marketing world, it is extremely helpful to be helpful and kind to other people. And education is a great way to do that. And as a result, personal branding tends to work pretty well. You know, you said nobody asked you to show the pipeline. Yet, we do need to talk about the ROI or like how would we measure this or how do we justify that there's opportunity cost, you know, like could, could we invest the time in something else, you know? You get more inbound, period, if it's working. And so here's an example. In the early days of Drift, we didn't think about how to measure it. I'm sure if we had done the show for like a year and two years and I never, never thought about measuring it, we would have been asked to. But like very early on, people would show up on our website and get a demo from sales and the sales rep would go in Slack and be like, I got a demo today and the demo source would be like Seeking Wisdom fan. And we're like, okay, so we'd screenshot that and send it around. And this is like the company's like 12 people. And so it happened so early at that small level that it just became baked in it. So then like the next week we get another message like that. The next week, I get a LinkedIn message from some CMO that I've never talked to who says that they're huge fans of the Drift podcast. Then, this is literally how it happened. Then, one of our investors sends us a tweet that one of their portfolio companies talked about and how they're listening. Like It just became everywhere, and we had no perfect spreadsheet to quantify it, but it was like it was a gut-feeling thing that, holy cow, at least once a week, people are doing it. And then... We had an office in Boston at the time in this Copley Mall, and David and I would be walking to go get a coffee. And one day, these two people yell out, "They're like seeking wisdom!" And like, obviously, Boston can be a small place, but we started joking. We'd say, "How will we ever measure if a podcast is working?" And it became this joke. And so, everyone in the company over a couple of years would then share screenshots of somebody who said something nice about seeking wisdom or whatever. We would then share it in the company Slack with like a joke. The tagline would be like, how will we ever measure our podcast? And so it became this thing inside the company where everybody was feeling it at this qualitative level that it never became a like, should we really measure doing this? Because it's so hard that the measurement would have led us in the wrong direction anyway. But um, we felt it at that level to the level where the CFO was like, whatever you guys are doing, just keep doing it. <laughs> like there is a story with some of the numbers and some of these channels. And so I think like I'm in management meetings and I'm showing numbers and spreadsheets and charts, but I'm also showing screenshots of podcast reviews and screenshots of things people are saying about drift and the podcast on Twitter, because I think you need to reinforce those things. And like the attribution puzzle is much more complex than what you usually see. There are some examples of public visible founders that then did something stupid. So, you know, the GoDaddy founder shooting the elephant, uh, the Basecamp saga. 
what would you say to the argument? You know, it's like a single point of failure is a, is a public founder and then, you know, gets drunk and says something stupid. There's risk in anything. To me, it's an investment strategy. It is a, is a channel that you're, you know, there's risk, right? Everybody in this world is into Bitcoin right now and you're buying it and you know that the whole thing could go to zero and you're still doing it anyway. You might make a lot of money on it or you might not. And so I think like, yeah, there are those examples of the founders who do something or say something at a time. And especially today in 2022, it is, it is more, it is easier than ever to wake up the next morning and be like, oh my goodness, I just alienated half of my customer base. <laughs> I pissed off half of my customer base. Don't fire people in Zoom, eh? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that was, I mean, is that story even real? Like in what planet does that happen? I think it's a risk, but I think eight out of 10 times it's worth it. I also think like you can try to be too safe and then you end up saying nothing. And I don't mean like go shoot elephants and, <laughs> and, and post your pictures with them, you know, but part of what makes the founder brand stuff work is uh, it's not just you tweeting out links and articles and stuff about your company. It's, it's about you. Here's an example. Like, I love the fact that you post videos of you doing pull-ups. Some people probably hate that, but I like that. And I think that gives like another piece of you that I can feel like I get to understand on, on, on social media. So there's trade-offs. Yeah. Similarly, like you posting uh, pics with your kids and, and whatever. And, you know, like, I mean, I even sneak it in strategically to humanize myself because it's so easy to hate on a visible person that you don't know, right? 100%. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's why I'm like, I'm going to do more podcasts again because <laughs> some lady told me the other day, she's like, you are much nicer and funnier than I, than I ever would have imagined. <laughs> of course, as with anything, there are strategic trade-offs to be made when it comes to personal brand strategy. Putting yourself out there can humanize you, make you more likable, but it also makes you vulnerable to certain risks, things to think about. Your star employee leaves and brings her brand to the next company. Now what? Or your personalities get canceled for some stupid thing they did. You should plan for these scenarios, but the overall upside is much stronger than the downside. And if you find yourself attracting negative criticism online, there are valuable lessons to be learned here too. Take it from someone who is no stranger to online hate, entrepreneur and internet personality Gary Vee. First, it's accountability. Hey, maybe I didn't do a good job explaining something on a podcast and it turned that person off. Hey, maybe we didn't edit an Instagram clip well enough and the context was lost, even though I write the copy always to like set up the video. Maybe they didn't read the copy. So for me, first I focus on pointing my thumb at myself. What have I done to make people misunderstand? You know, when everybody tries to say that I talk about overworking yourself and hustle porn, I'm like, man, I didn't do a good enough job in my early career to talk about this was contextual to the time. You know, the economy collapsed, people were out of jobs, people were hurting, the internet was exploding, it was a huge opportunity, and even though I talked about being happy and doing it for 50,000 a year if it makes you happy, for some reason, maybe I let that word hustle get too attached to me. You know, I still love hustle, it's called work ethic, but that doesn't mean I'm talking about burnout or suicide or unhappiness. There's a reason that people that have more consumption of my content feel better about it because they've been able to see it contextualize versus somebody seeing three viral videos ever and deciding that's who I am. So what goes through my mind is they're right because they're a human being and that's their opinion. 
and I've got to do a better job clarifying. I didn't talk about the fact in the first 10 years of my career that my dad owned Wine Library and I didn't. You mentioned that the founder should post daily, every single day. Is it really like like advertising, reach and repetition? Can I do it weekly? Is, uh, is more better? Yeah, I think more is better. But more is not better for like the content reach in the early days. It's it, More is better actually for you because you, you need as many reps on this as you can get. If you post once a week, at the end of the month, you're going to say to me, Dave, I posted once a week and I got, I got nothing. Well, right, because the whole magic in social media is the feedback loop. And so in order to get more feedback, and, and feedback, I mean likes, comments, retweets, those are like the signals on social if you post four times in a month versus if you post 40 times in a month, that's 40 more times that you're putting your messages out there. And social media can just be this amazing way. Like once you have a little bit of an audience, I mean, you probably feel this now, but I feel very good about 99% of the content that I am going to invest in because I feel like I've already kind of tested that idea in one form or another, whether it was a tweet or a LinkedIn post. Like the majority of the way that I write my newsletter now is I take topics that I put out that people really reacted to and then we'll write them in, in, in more in depth for the newsletter. And when I say every day, does it doesn't have to be seven out of seven days? No. But if you do it five out of seven days of the week, that would be pretty good because that's five times a week you're getting a chance to test content. And, and social media is just like, if you do it right, it can be a feed of your ideal customers. And so I want to be putting as many messages out in front of those people as I can to get more feedback. Over time, as you start to find your voice, as you start to find what content people like, the goal is not just to pump out meaningless stuff every day, but I think you need to do it in order to find your voice, probably at least for the first year or so. And I also just think like it's all relative, right? If you say I'm going to post every day, but you only post four out of seven days, did you fail? Hell no, that's, that's great. But if you say I'm going to post once a week, you probably will actually only post three out of four weeks in a month and you only post it three times. So it's also just a little bit of like a, psychological exercise too. So you've decided you want to nourish your social and have committed to posting once a day. Now what? When you don't have decades of experience to share yet, it can be hard to know what to talk about and how to go about it. So here's my advice. One, be consistent. You want to be posting every single day on Twitter multiple times a day. Choose your networks. Where are the people you want to influence? And then you want to be consistent. And obviously, if you're consistently boring, then that doesn't help your cause. So number two, be interesting. If you want to be consistently interesting, which is, of course, a high bar, try and add value to the conversation about your domain. It helps if you, three, stick to the category. This makes it easy for people to put you in a box as someone knowledgeable about a certain subject. Four, share personal stories and lessons. You've been around, you've learned some things. So what are the top things you've learned about, say, hiring or motivation? Personal stories and personal lessons learned are the most impactful social media content. People really love that stuff. People love stories rather than platic usually. Work hard, success will come. My advice, speak from experience and put yourself out there. Then be consistent with interesting content. I see people who are who have the repetition down. You know, I see them on Twitter, on LinkedIn and whatever. Yet what they're posting is Mm, meh. I mean, it's not that everybody, like nobody has every post is like a, a greatest hit, right? You can see when people are on the treadmill and just kind of pumping out blah stuff. And I think it's very easy to make an adjustment on that because if there's no comments and, and engagement and, and reactions, the audience kind of dictates 
that. You know, you know it. You put out one out of every ten things you put out. You check your phone three hours later, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, that was people really were interested in that." And so I think you should let engagement rule, right? And even even I say post every day on LinkedIn, but I think sometimes I post things and I get very little reach because it's not interesting. I could probably be more efficient in posting, but I, I don't think the value. Here's a hot take for you: you have to have something interesting to say, and so if you just post every day, but you post nonsense or just like fluff or, or no strong opinions or no, or something people don't care about. That's not the goal. The goal is not post every day and you will magically have something, right? You could only post once a week, but when you post once a week, you have the most controversial, insane solution problem. Like if you have that level of content, then great. But I think it's somewhere in the middle where, where most people fall. And my observation is also that the smaller reach you have, like your audience, your followers, and so on, the better your content needs to be. Like Gary Vee can tweet out, like, have a great Friday, and it's gets a million retweets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, that's not, that shows the mark of an engaged audience, right? That that guy can just post anything and he's going to get hundreds of thousands of comments because he has 2 million followers on on LinkedIn. But yeah, you, you don't. And so you got to win. And I think that's, that's the overall, the way to win with building your brand as a founder is not to tweet six times a week. It's to have something meaningful and interesting to say. And so the reason why I think social media is a great channel is because if you're a founder, that means you started a company, which means you're crazy in some capacity or you have some burning deep problem or there's some related thread that puts you in a position to be very marketable. And as the founder, you started this company because you, you're trying to solve this problem or whatever you're doing. And so you're always talking to partners and candidates and investors. And you're, you are the deepest in this market that anybody could be. All I'm saying is and then basically just like hit the on button and just start talking about some of that stuff publicly. That's the dream scenario. But if you're not interesting and you're not doing something interesting and you don't have interesting takes and perspectives on it, then yes, it's the, the, the advice is not post every day on social media and you will grow your business. And so I would first, before you go and think about getting on social media, go for a bunch of long walks and think about what are two or three beliefs that you have? What are two or three things that you've seen or done differently? Or ideally these are related to your company and your product, but they can also be kind of company values level things too. You need a hook. You need probably two or three strong hooks in order to be effective on, on social. So what is Dave's advice for winning through visibility and personal brand? One, commit to consistently sharing your unique experience and insights on social media. It's like the same thing that happens in our re in our personal lives can happen in, in B2B. And so if you sell to marketers, you sell to finance, the opportunities to build up a direct relationship with those people online. And the way that you do that is not by promoting yourself, it's by adding value and being a thought leader. And the way that you be a thought leader is by putting out you know relevant, interesting content about your niche every single day, every single week. Two, let your story inform every aspect of your business. This is why people say your story is your strategy. This is a perfect example of that because that story, the VP of product was aligned on that story. And so the things that product was building was aligned to that story. The things we were doing in marketing were aligned to that story. 
I've never been a part of a team at that stage that was so aligned and, and, and cranking, and that was a big reason that we grew so fast. And three, content coming from a marketing team is great, but putting a face to your founder is even better. It's so damn hard to start a business. You have to be crazy to start a business. You must have some deep burning passion or insight or expertise or whatever that led you to start this. Like, you're the one that's in these conversations every day with investors, advisors, customers. You're talking to people in the market. You're having the most interesting conversations. And I think the opportunity is for, for people to hear from you. We don't want to buy from nameless companies. We like to buy from brands where we actually know someone. One final takeaway from Dave. Social media is still the biggest opportunity for startups. You're able to reach your dream customers directly from anywhere in the world without spending a dollar and get feedback on ideas and things that are interesting. Like it's, it's just such a cheat code for getting, not only getting initial customers, but just getting your finger on the pulse of what's happening in your world. And that's how you win. I'm Bev Lea. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.